Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You know, exercise is good for your body. It's good for your brain, too. Later this hour, we'll hear from neuroscientist Dr. Wendy Suzuki. She'll be in Hartford this evening. Real Artways is screening a documentary that showcases pioneering brain scientist Dr. Marion Diamond. Diamond was also Suzuki's mentor, and she'll tell us how she went from the lab to the gym to learn more about brain plasticity. And love it or hate it, talk of tolls in Connecticut is not going away. Street Blog's writer Angie Schmidt will break down which regions and countries have used tolls and seen benefits, like actually reducing congestion on the roadway. That's coming up. But first, Connecticut lawmakers are halfway through the session holding hearings and working feverishly to send bills to the floor so the full General Assembly can vote on them. The big question that looms large is how will leaders and the governor reach a deal to pass the next two-year budget on time, a budget that must plug a nearly $3 billion hole? At this time, there are some hints what may or may not make it in. Last week, House Speaker and the Connecticut General Assembly, Representative Joe Arasimowitz, told the Hartford Current some of the governor's more controversial budget proposals don't have enough support to pass right now. He also says tolls are inevitable. How soon could that be implemented around the state? Speaker Arasimowitz is joining us to answer those questions and more. And we'll also check in with Republican leadership, too. Senate Minority Leader Len Fasano will be calling in as well. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, State Representative Joe Arasimowitz became Speaker of the Connecticut House in January. Again, he joins us by phone. Speaker Arasimowitz, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Let's start with that T word, tolls. It gets the same reaction that other when people mention the other word, taxes. You told The Current last week tolls, quote, are inevitable, and it's beyond a fairness issue. Tell us what you mean. So uh, I and others around the state travel to many of the other states, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, and uh, when we go, we pay tolls. Uh, if you go to New Jersey, Maryland, you pay even higher tolls. And their tolls go to infrastructure improvements. And here we are in the state of Connecticut with a special transportation fund uh, that uh, doesn't have enough money to do the projects we have on the table. And it's only going to get worse in the coming years. And we need to move forward with tolls to do the necessary improvements to our roads and bridges that we need here in the state. How much of the the deficit um, is causing lawmakers to look at tolls as a new revenue? I don't think the tolls would be a new revenue. They'd be a a revenue that would have to be dedicated to uh, the road improvements and bridge improvements. If we were to try to take uh, the money from tolls and put it into the general fund or use it for anything other than infrastructure improvements, we would find ourselves in this situation where we'd have to pay back the federal government some of the highway money we've received over the years. Now, you're House Speaker, so you control what bills go to the floor. Is this something uh, allowing tolls uh, to come onto Connecticut roadways? Is that something that lawmakers could vote on this session? I know the transport, I think there was a committee last week that, that passed a bill um, that would uh, implement tolls if passed. Yeah, so the Transportation Committee held a hearing and they voted out uh, a bill that would include tolls for the state of Connecticut, and that is heading to the floor. It will be the subject of further negotiations. We have to figure out exactly how we'll do it, whether we do 
with a public-private partnership? Do we just go out and contract it entirely out? Uh, that's where the discussion is at in my mind. Um, within the next year or two, we could have tolls on the roads in the state of Connecticut. How much money are we talking about if, if tolls were to come to Connecticut to be used, as you say, solely for transportation projects? It, it would depend on how quick we do it and what the rollout period is. But uh, the numbers we, we received initially from the Office of Fiscal Analysis were around 250 to $350 million a year. Now, we asked Governor Malloy his stance on tolls when he came onto the show in January. Here's what he told us. Even if we were to decide today we wanted tolls, and I don't think there's a political consensus yet that that's the case, uh, it would take probably four years to uh, institute from the time the legislature acted. So it's not a panacea to our immediate problems. And um, when Republicans uh, in the legislature blocked um, a supermajority vote to get it on the ballot last November, we lost time. And, and I think that, that, that that's costly to the state. Again, that's uh, Governor Malloy talking in January. He's also mentioning uh, the legislature permitting a constitutional amendment to create a transportation lockbox. Uh, Speaker, I understand last night a legislative committee approved a bill to allow this constitutional amendment lockbox. Again, the idea that it would protect funds for transportation projects. Uh, with this other bill now um, headed, um, you know, obviously voted out of committee, is that consensus within the legislature growing for tolls to pay for transportation infrastructure? Yes, I, I, I actually believe it is. And uh, we could actually do it quicker. Other states have been able to roll it out uh, a little bit quicker. Um, the public does want to know that whatever money is going towards uh, tolls is going to go to transportation infrastructure. I think the lockbox that was debated in the General Assembly last year and forwarded by the committee would be able to do that. But I think on both sides there were some concerns. So hopefully I'll work with uh, members on the other side of the aisle to ensure that we get the language necessary to, to pass the tolls and to do it in a dedicated way. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Representative Joe Arasimowitz. He's the Connecticut General Assembly's House Speaker. Today we're talking about tolls. Uh, he made the comment last week to The Current that tolls, quote, are inevitable. We wanted to find out what exactly that means for state residents and our roadways. Uh, you mentioned working with the other side. On the phone with us now, uh, Speaker Arasimowitz is Republican Senate Minority Leader Len Fasano. Senator Fasano, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Good morning, Len. How you doing? Good. Uh, Senator Fasano, your party has been um, vocal against tolls. Um, I'm curious uh, if you could talk about, uh, with this co conversation coming back uh, in the legislature, the Senate uh, has uh, is evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. Is this something that Republicans would change their minds on? Well, right now I think the answer is, is that tolls is not really the answer. Uh, I know that most listeners, when they hear it, uh, think of border tolls. That is to say, like you see in New York and Massachusetts and New Jersey, as the, Mr. Speaker has uh, alluded to. But frankly, in Connecticut, you cannot do border tolls. In 1983, 84, we entered into an agreement with the federal government after that horrific accident in Stratford where several people were killed, that we decided we we're going to take down the tolls. So what we drafted was an agreement with the federal government that said, if we take down the tolls, what you what you are going to do is uh, you're going to pay for our infrastructure. So for every dollar we put into highways, the federal government gives us back $3. In Massachusetts, they get nothing. 
for every dollar that we spend, we spend at your gas tax pump when you pump gasoline and you pay the federal government, we get back a dollar plus. That's why uh, Senator Murphy, when he was congressman, wanted to up the federal tax on gasoline because we get more revenue for the state of Connecticut. That's not true in New Jersey or New York or in Massachusetts. So we made that deal. But the deal says if we do put tolls back, we have to pay back all the federal funding since 1984. So we can't put up tolls at our borders. That's just an impossibility. The next thing we could look at is what uh, DOT is looking at as a possibility is congestion pricing. That is, you put a series of tolls uh, throughout the state, 95, 91, you have to do Route 15, you have to do Route 8, you probably want to do Route 9 so somebody can't circumvent the system. And these series of tolls, like you have in uh, Miami where they have these um, images that, that either read your easy pass or take a picture of your license. But there you have to have congestion pricing. That is to say, one price for peak uh, hour, you know, the morning rush, the afternoon, the evening rush, and one price less for the day-to-day travel. That's the best you can do. Now, the question is, when you do this, what is the return on that investment, and does it make sense to do? And I would suggest that the white papers put out by TOT say that there's a nominal return or even a negative return, but there's a nominal return. So this is not the uh, silver bullet uh, to solve our transportation problems at all. It's going to come nowhere close uh, if it generates any real revenue at the end of the day because there's a price point for which people will say, I'm getting off and I'm getting on Route 1, let's say on 95. Route 1 parallels 95 from New London to Greenwich. So people will get off, depending on what the pricing is, they'll get off and avoid the tolls. Same thing on 91 going from New Haven to Massachusetts. You could take a lot of different local routes, and depending on price points, and this report that DOT has talks about this, the higher the cost, the more likely people will get off. So if they're going to get off the highway, they're not paying the fee. So those are all the problems they could figure into modeling to determine. I don't think there's been a definitive model yet, uh, but I suggest that what's out there so far is not a real moneymaker in transportation. It's a great soundbite. It's great to throw out there, make out-of-state people pay for our roads, which also is a misnomer. Mm. Because if you live in Michigan and you get a speeding ticket in Connecticut – There's no reciprocity with Michigan. So if you go back to Michigan, you don't ever have to worry about paying Connecticut's speeding ticket. Um, And same thing with the tolls. If there's no reciprocity with other states to make sure you can't renew your license or your registration or insurance, whatever it is, unless you pay the fine, uh, there's a lot of lost money by virtue of collections that are never going to take place. But Senator Fasano, is it is it just about added revenue? I mean, isn't part of the, the the conversation, at least when you're talking about congestion pricing, is eliminating congestion on some of those bottlenecks that we have around the state? Well, we then you're talking about something different. You're talking about what do we need to do to improve our public transportation system? You know, my daughter works in New York City, 
And one day I went to go drop her off at the New Haven train station. She lives in New York City, but she came home to visit. And I was dropping her off for a 7.30, I think it was, train, something like that, leaving for New York City. And the traffic going into New Haven was stalled, so we weren't going to hit that train. So we decided, well, let's pick up the train in Milford. And I was like five minutes late for Milford. I said, well, let's try Stratford. I was five minutes late for Stratford. At the end of the day, I drove her to New York City. Uh, the train beat me by 20 minutes. That doesn't speak. Uh, so I'm driving through Fairfield on rush hour traffic, bumper to bumper, stop and go, and that train beat me by 20 minutes. That's nothing. So if you want to talk about uh, decongesting our highways, that's a different conversation. And the question is, how are you going to raise money to fix that problem? And Republicans have put out prioritized progress, which is a definitive plan with no tolls, no new taxes, putting um, over uh, 30 years, um, seven uh, see, uh, $70 billion over 30 years into the transportation system. And no one has argued that this plan is failure is a failure or doesn't work. They just don't like that option. Well, let's hear, but uh, that's how you do that. Let's hear Speaker Arsimowitz uh, respond to some of your, your points, uh, Senator Fasano. Uh, Speaker Arsimowitz, what do you think about what Senator Fasano is saying? This is not a silver bullet. It's not going to, to bring in the benefits that um, is being described. Yeah, I strongly disagree, actually. Um, in 1987, the Federal Aid Highway Act contained a provision to allow us to reinstate the tolls and not have to pay back the money. In 1991, New Jersey uh, did it with the Delaware Bridge. Um, this has been done before. It, it will be border tolls. We can't just do them on the borders. We'll have to do them at other locations also. Um, I know they've been using the great little political soundbite that I said to the Hartford Current that they'll have to be throughout the transportation infrastructure of the state. They just couldn't be at the borders, but they will be at the borders. And with public-private partnerships and Easy Pass, we could then, if the Connecticut residents buy their Easy Pass here in Connecticut, we can have that be at a different rate for folks that have Easy Pass from the other areas. We could also give them a credit on their state income tax for the local residents to offset what they would have paid in taxes. Um, this is an incredibly popular plan. I know it may not fit with the overall political narrative, but moving forward in a transportation infrastructure improvements in Connecticut are critical to our economic development. While tolls may not be the only answer, border tolls and some tolls throughout the state of Connecticut will provide us the necessary money to do it. Speaker Arsenowitz. So if I can, I need to clarify this to be clear. What happened was the agreement of 1983 provided that when Connecticut is free of tolls, um, they will be treated under the primary system for federal aid, which means that first, under this agreement, you can't put up border tolls. The only tolls that you can put up is what DOT suggests to put up, which is variable rate tolls, that is, congestion pricing. And I didn't say that. Commissioner Ritiker, in his report to the General Assembly uh, from CDM Smith, which was the expert they hired on April 16, 2014, revised April 23, 2015, said... If you put up border tolls, you got to repay the money. However, if you put up variable tolls, i.e. congestion tolls, not at the borders, but scattered, that's why DOTs talk about 78 minimum of these, 
So Joe is right. Uh, the speaker is right. You can't put up tolls under a condition that they're not border tolls and under a condition that they are congested pricing. If you put up border tolls, you have to pay the money back. That is clear as a bell when, according to DOT, not Len Fasano and not Republican Party. Speaker, I, and I think we're I think we're both saying the same thing. It can't just be border tolls, and I was very clear about that. But you could have tolls inside the border, and it would cover what we would determine as border tolls. Speaker Arsene, we're going to talk more about congestion price, pricing a little bit mm-hmm. later in the show. But I wanted to ask you um, to, to respond to what Senator Fasano said about um, the funds. He said there's a plan that could actually uh, bolster the transportation fund in the state of Connecticut without uh, toll revenue. How, how else can they do that? Well, if we're, we're talking, I think the number uh, Senator Fasano used was $70 billion over the next 30 years. Um, in reality, that's just a drop in the bucket. If you look at the uh, 84 in the Hartford area, the amount of money that's going to take to address, if you look at the Mixmaster in Waterbury, we're talking anywhere from 2 to $5 billion just in immediate needs here in the state of Connecticut. Um, so, it sounds like a large number, but when you're talking about bridges, highways, expansion, um, mass transportation, it, it's a lot more money than one realizes. The money goes quick. So I, his plan, I've actually looked at it, and I'm in favor of a lot of aspects of it. And I think we have to do multiple things at the same time. We can't just say this one thing is the answer. Um, Speaker Arsenowitz, there's also public opinion. We just got a tweet. A listener said, Connecticut residents better not have to pay tolls. Uh, we pay enough in taxes already. How do you respond? Uh, look, tolls is a, a user fee. And, and I would argue that while uh, taxes are an issue and they're always an issue, um, excluding property tax, we're comparable to almost every state around us. We're even comparable to other areas of the country. I know there's a study coming out that we hear a lot about business taxes here in the state of Connecticut, but we're on par, if not lower than most areas of the state. So I would say look at it in totality. If we're going to say having uh, infrastructure, roads that are safe, bridges that are safe are important, we're going to have to pay for it. If we want quality education, again, I think we're in the top five in the state of Connecticut in uh, education, we're going to have to pay for that. Um, The residents value the quality services of Connecticut, and those all come with a price. And to have the roads and the infrastructure improvements we need to grow our economy, we have to be willing to pay something for that. Before we run out of time, because you're both legislative leaders, I wanted to shift to another big job that you have before you, and that is uh, coming through with a budget agreement. Um, you also told the, the Hartford Current Speaker, Arsimowitz, that uh, two of the budge- governor's budget proposals, two big proposals uh, to make towns contribute toward teacher pensions, also taxing hospitals, those aren't feasible. So how are you going to plug this deficit? By working together. Um, I've said all along that this answer is not going to be just housed within the House Democrats operation. Uh, It won't be in the House Republicans, the administrative branch, Senate Democrats or Senate Republicans. It's going to require all of us to come to the table, to check our political party at the door, to drop the Republican and Democrat off and just put, put on the C for Connecticut and come up with the answers and really work together and sometimes compromise in areas that we don't necessarily agree with, but to get to a budget for the greater good. We all have two years um, before we go up for re-election. I've also said that, you know, I'm not concerned about my re-election. I'm willing to put my re-election to the side 
and make decisions that are best for the state of Connecticut. So I'm hoping all the other caucuses, uh, the administrative branch, everybody joins me in that endeavor. And I think if we do it together in a bipartisan way, we can come up with a budget that will serve the residents of Connecticut. Senator Fasano, your thoughts of, of plugging this, uh, again, $3 billion uh, deficit over the next two years. Uh, the Connecticut Mirror is reporting that leaders on the Finance Committee say they expect an increase in Connecticut sales tax to help balance the books. What's your response? Well, I, I just heard about that yesterday, about the sales tax going to something like 6.9%. Once again, just like the tweet that you received from one of your listeners a couple of minutes ago, enough's enough. You know, uh, the speaker talks about a, a user fee. We already do that on the tolls because you pay on the gasoline. We get the highest gasoline tax, second highest gasoline tax uh, in the country. So we're already paying a user fee. And the raised sales tax, uh, once again, uh, that's always seems to be the quick go-to answer, not to look inward and say, how can we do things different? And when we do this budget, and we will have conversations, I want to be clear, uh, the Speaker and I briefly talked about a budget. I talked to Senator Looney, and obviously Representative or uh, Minority Leader uh, Claritas has talked to all of us as well. Uh, we're all going to have conversations, but in our world of looking at things, we need to look at the way we do government different. We need to make structural changes that may not afford a benefit in two years, but in four years it will, because you have to budget for generations, not for elections. Senator Fasano, can that be done without layoffs? So you're talking about on the, uh, uh, on the budget. labor side. Mm -hmm. On the labor side, a couple of things. The governor's put a number of $700 million in the first year. Um, he, when we had a brief conversation, he felt that still number was not fully negotiated, but within the grasp. I don't believe in layoffs for a bunch of reasons. I think layoffs um, means that we have failed. We have promised people jobs. We promised the people we could balance the budget. We promised people here are the budgets that we have, and we have enough money to, to spend it. And then we don't, and now people who have kids and so forth are depending upon us. So I think that um, it's a tool that the governor has to use if necessary, but I think union leadership has got to talk about their rank and file and be more concerned about the people who are making 50000 and 55000 the lower-end people of SEIU, and say we need to protect them as well as the people making 100000 plus that are higher up in our system. And sometimes I feel the, the lower end of the union system is a castaway, a throwaway, uh, and they're willing to sacrifice those jobs in order not to give up one penny that they've negotiated. And I think that needs to be looked at very hard by this union. And Speaker Arsenowitz, I'll ask you the same question. Can the, the budget be balanced without layoffs? I hope so. Um, we've seen with these austerity budgets going back to 2011 a negative impact on our economy. If we were to lay off, I think the number's pegged to 4,200 state employees. It, it would have a devastating effect. Those are individuals that uh, own homes. Those are individuals that pay car payments. Those are individuals that have kids in daycare. They buy pizza. They shop at the local stores. To take that amount of money out of the economy, I think it would have a multiplying effect on the state budget. It would only make our situation much worse. Looks like we're out of time, but I want to thank Democratic State Representative Joe Arasimowitz, Connecticut Speaker of the House. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Len. It was nice talking to you.
Nice talking to you, Mr. Speaker. And thank you, Republican Senator Len Fasano. Again, Senate Minority Leader. Coming up, lawmakers bring up tolls when revenue is needed, but how should the conversation be framed, framed to win public support? Better quality roads? Less congestion? We'll find out from Angie Schmidt, writer at Streets Blog. That's right after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As we mentioned, tolls are being discussed yet again at the Capitol. No coincidence when the state budget is in the red and dollars for transportation projects are drying up. Now, other states have tolls, but only a few have what's called congestion pricing. We heard Senator Fasano mentioning that. Connecticut has talked about it. There are some bills before the legislature and and committee. What is it exactly? Could the option help reduce traffic at choke points while also providing resources for smarter transportation and mass transit projects? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. And joining us by phone now is Angie Schmidt, urbanist writer at Streets Blog. Angie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We know Connecticut is the only East Coast state between North Carolina and Maine that doesn't have tolls. How are tolls viewed around the country as a means to raise revenue? Well, um, a lot of times there is a little bit of a backlash from the public. The public has gotten used to roads being free. But uh, I think they're a really smart policy. And uh, they can. the great thing about tolls as opposed to other forms of revenue, like raising the gas tax, or using sales tax or general fund revenue to pay for roads is not only um, do they provide funding, but they can also reduce the need for construction if they can help manage congestion. You're based in Ohio. How does tolling work over there? Um, In Ohio, we only have one road that's tolled, um, the Ohio Turnpike. Uh, But tolling works better in places like Connecticut that are congested major metropolitan areas. Um, so there, there isn't much of a um, uh, tradition for using tolls here, but we do have the, um, our major toll road that collects revenue that way. And it's used to support other projects around the state. Uh, we mentioned congestion pricing or variable tolling. Tell us how that's used, and is it a better way to think about, um, again, raising revenue, reducing congestion, where you can then use it to inform better and more um, smarter mass transit projects, for instance? Yeah, I think so. Um, The good thing about variable tolling is you can raise prices at rush hour and reduce them at hours when congestion isn't much of a problem. And what that does is um, there's a lot, even at rush hour, there's what are called marginal commuters. They're people that they don't have anywhere very special to go. They're not necessarily on a work commute. They're just, they just decide to go to the store and it happened to be rush hour. So if you can eliminate some of those folks, if you can sort of entice some people that are on the road at rush hour to maybe move their trips to a different time of day, that will make everything run smoother for the people that really need to be out there at that particular time. And that can reduce the need for expensive road widening in the future. Um, What I've read about uh, congestion pricing is sometimes there are actually new uh, lanes that are constructed for um, this this, uh, option. How has that been used around the country? Yeah, that's that's usually the way it's worked. The federal government sort of insists on interstate highways that only new lanes can be priced. So uh, a number of areas have tried that, and the devil is sort of in the details. 
Um, but there is evidence that they improve speeds. They can improve the speed of traffic dramatically, not only in the price lanes, but they, they can also have an impact in the unpriced lanes by helping manage congestion. And a lot of times those price lanes are also um, carpooling. Oh, is, there a, is one of the reasons you don't see this type of option around the country because it's, it's hard to get the public to buy into this, this idea, this concept? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, We've been sort of resistant in the United States. With, you know, our whole system was built on this idea that roadways are free. But that sort of caused uh, a lot, a bit of a problem for us because rather than paying a price, we end up um, spending our time waiting in line, you know, for congestion, for an underpriced good. So, like, for example, if we gave away, if some re- local restaurant was giving away hamburgers for free, there might be a very long line. And in order to get your free hamburger, you'd have to pay a price in maybe waiting an hour in line to get a hamburger. And the, the way we dole out our transportation resources is sort of the same. By always keeping the price at zero, even when you do, by driving, um, exert a social cost on other people, we've contributed to congestion problems that could be easily managed using pricing. Now, I understand that in London, they used a type of of congestion pricing. What's happened in that city? Well, um, speeds speeds increased. Congestion dropped within the congestion pricing zone, and um, cars moved faster. It looks like um, also there was some good environmental results also. They had more people now biking, more people taking transit. Um, so it was pretty successful, although over the years, the, um, it has become more congested again. So there often is a need to tweak the formula and um, also provide alternatives for people. Now, we mentioned that in Connecticut, lawmakers are mulling over uh, whether uh, tolls should come back, um, this idea of congestion pricing. Um, as uh, policymakers debate this option, like, what are some of the ways that this conversation should be happening in the state, Angie? Well, I caught a little bit of the previous conversation, and I thought the speaker made a very good point. I mean, one thing to consider, one thing for the public to consider is, how much money should go towards roads and mass transit in Connecticut? That's really a political question. And if there is a gap, um, you know, how is that going to be filled? Tolls, in my opinion, are one of the fairest ways because the people who are using the roads, the people who are benefiting from the investments are the ones that are paying. Other states have done things like raise the gas tax, which also isn't popular but is a little bit more of an invisible fee. Uh, or even things like raising the sales tax, which which is very regressive and, in my opinion, a little bit unfair. So I think it sounds like there's some good, there's a good discussion underway in Connecticut. Now, before we go, um, the Trump administration has recently released uh, its budget proposal. What does that signal for transportation projects around the country? Well, um, it's interesting because President Trump has proposed spending a hundred uh, trillion dollars on infrastructure. But his initial budget outline calls for some pretty severe and radical cuts to transportation, and um, transit, mass transit, bears the brunt of that. He um, calls for slashing the major program that funds new transit investment in cities um, and cities around the country that have been planning major transit projects. Those projects are in jeopardy if this budget is 
approved. Now, whether Congress is going to go ahead with it is an open question. He also um, he also eliminates a popular program that funds biking and walking. So it's sort of bad news for the environment and um, for cities. Uh, there isn't a Connecticut project that would be impacted, but um, it's something to watch, and we'll see how Congress reacts. And he's also um, encouraging PPPs. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, actually, um, Trump's budget, we don't know much about what he's proposed for his, I'm sorry, $1 trillion infrastructure plan. But one thing he's laid out is he thinks more of um, more of the funding should come from public-private partnerships, which is a private investment in roadways and mass transit. And um, we do have a little bit of... Um, a legacy of that in the United States, but it's a fairly new way to fund infrastructure. And um, it would rely, you can't, um, you can't entice private entities to build roads that are free. They ha- they'd have to be told, otherwise there's no profit incentive for um, private entities. So he is talking about sort of unleashing a, a major tolling scheme to help fund infrastructure in the United States although we still don't have a lot of details about that and whether, you know, that will be politically palatable for people going forward. It's the same kind of question about, okay, we want to spend more on infrastructure. How are we going to raise the funding? Angie Schmidt is urbanist writer at Streets Blog. Thanks, Angie, for joining us today. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we check in with neuroscientist Dr. Wendy Suzuki. She'll be in Hartford tonight to talk about exercise and our brains. That's after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, recently we did a show about super agers, those people over 80 who have brains as sharp as individuals in their 20s and 30s. And we learned that exercise is one of the factors that can keep your brain healthy as you age. Neuroscientist Dr. Wendy Suzuki has studied the benefits of aerobic exercise on the brain, specifically how exercise can be used to improve learning, memory, and higher cognitive abilities. She'll be speaking at Real Artways in Hartford tonight at 6.30, ahead of a screening of the documentary, My Love Affair with the Brain, The Life and Science of Dr. Marion Diamond. Dr. Suzuki is professor of neural science and psychology at New York University. Dr. Suzuki, welcome to where we live. Thank you, Lucy. Wonderful to be here. Tell us about Dr. Marion Diamond. How did she influence you to study neuroscience? Well, Marion Diamond is the reason why I am a neuroscientist today. And uh, there's a specific day that I could point to that that made this shift. And it happened to be the first day of my freshman year at UC Berkeley when I took a freshman seminar class called The Brain and Its Potential. Now, I didn't know anybody at Berkeley. I didn't know who was teaching it. But it turns out I got a rock star as a neuroscience professor. And she told us about her groundbreaking studies that showed that if you actually raise rats in um, what she called enriched environments, which are 
basically the Disney World of rat cages with lots of toys and lots of other rats to play with. And you examine their brains and compare them to rats that were raised in what she called impoverished environments with no toys and not too many other rats around. Um, she found that the brain that the rats raised in the Disney World cages actually got thicker. The outside covering of the brain got larger. And this was one of the very first examples of how the environment could actually change the brain. Uh, and I just thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. And I knew I wanted to study that too. You mentioned so, uh, you yeah. mentioned she was a rock star. I wanted to I'll play a clip from the film, My Love Affair with the Brain, The Life and Science of Dr. Marion Diamond. This is something I believe she did with you when you were a student, but here she is talking to a group of Berkeley freshmen and she unveils something surprising. So welcome to our great university at Berkeley. How many of you have studied brains? How many have studied human brains? How many have seen a human brain? For those who haven't seen a brain, well, when you see a lady with a hat box, you don't know what she's carrying. And there you are. Did you know that this is what you hope you look like inside? So again, that's Dr. Marion Diamond in the documentary, My Love Affair with the Brain, The Life and Science of Dr. Marion Diamond. Uh, Dr. Suzuki, I, I was listening to your podcast, Totally Cerebral, from PRX, and you mentioned that was one of your most memorable moments when she did that before, before you. Yes, it was. It was uh, just seeing that brain uh, pulled out in that dramatic rock star kind of fashion uh, that has really stuck with me for uh, for my whole career. And um, as I say in the documentary, um, I, I do that for my students now, too, because it's such a wonderful way to introduce uh, the wonders of the brain to people that are not familiar with it. She was a pioneer in brain plasticity, something that wasn't embraced right away. And tell us about how um, you also studied under her. So tell us what how you then took that, um, you know, that experience and then focused it on the type of re uh, research and evidence that you were hoping to bring out. Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I helped with the studies going on in her lab, looking at the effects of these enriched environments, all the things, what what are the changes that you see in the brain when rats are raised in these, in these environments? Well, the key finding, or one of the key findings, was that... Um, uh, people later uh, asked, what was it about these these critical enriched environments that, that Marion developed uh, that was changing the brain? And it turns out the single factor that was most effective in causing many brain changes was the increased exercise that the rats were getting in these larger environments that always included running wheels and, and um, just lots of, lots of toys to play with that encouraged much more activity compared to the impoverished environments. And that really helped kind of push the neuroscience of exercise uh, into to, uh, this this kind of current generation. And that's what I have taken. All those animal studies and, and the valuable work that we've um, come to understand about the effects of exercise on 
many different brain functions. And now what I'm asking is, how is that working in humans? And what is the most effective uh, exercise uh, prescription that we can use to improve various brain functions? So you went from the lab to the gym. Tell us about your journey, what you saw, how exercise was, what was changing about you and how you were thinking. Sure. So um, my work with Marion Diamond uh, um, got me very interested in brain plasticity, which is basically how the brain changes in response to the environment, which is you know what she showed in these breakthrough studies that she did. But my first kind of love of brain plasticity or topic within brain plasticity was the topic of memory, how memories are formed, which is something that changes in our brain every time we learn something new. And so I was studying that and, and fascinating, fascinating subject. But I found myself, um, um, like so many people, so engrossed in my work. I just went from my apartment to my lab, back to my apartment, eating lots of takeout on the way. And I found myself 25 pounds overweight and and not moving at all. Um, And this is what kind of uh, propelled me to go to the gym. And this time it stuck. I don't know why why it did, but I I got to the gym and I I really made it a habit. And um, I, uh, well, actually, I do know part of the reason why it stuck. One of the things that that, uh, helped me uh, maintain this exercise, this new exercise regime, uh, is a class that I found at the gym that I loved. It was a class called Intensati, and um, it was developed by this uh, amazing fitness instructor, Patricia Moreno, in New York City. And it it, uh, combines physical movements from kickboxing, dance, and yoga, and martial arts with positive spoken affirmations. And that class just kept me coming back to the gym. And um, I got fit. I went from, you know, zero times a week aerobic workouts to three to five or six times a week aerobic workouts. And not immediately, but a year and a half in, I noticed something that really caught my attention. Now, immediately after I started going to the gym, I, I noticed mood and energy improvements, mood boosts, Absolutely, after these regular workouts. But a year and a half in, I noticed something even more striking, which was I could focus my attention much deeper and much longer, and my memory, the topic of my whole research program, was better, my personal long-term memory. And so um, that's what made me sit up and go, wait a second, what's what's going on here? My, my brain is being changed. And um, I developed a hypothesis that this was because of my new regular aerobic exercise workout. And this was kind of the start of a slow but consistent shift in my entire research focus from the brain areas important for long-term memory to my current focus, which is how we can use aerobic exercise in people to maximally improve a range of brain functions, including mood, um, long-term memory, uh, attention, and maybe even creativity. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Dr. Wendy Suzuki, professor of neural science and psychology in the Center for Neural Science at New York University. Dr. Suzuki will be in Hartford later uh, this evening to speak at Real Artways. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Suzuki, that exercise was was uh, impacting you, it was helping your memory, and that began to influence uh, the work that you were doing in the lab. Tell us what's happening in the brain when we're exercising and how that impacts our memory. Yeah, yeah. Um, people don't realize that there are so many 
uh, quite dramatic changes that happen even after a single workout. So after a single workout, there are numerous neurotransmitters and neurohormone systems that uh, are, are changing. There are increases in levels of dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline that can explain the mood boosts that, that people often uh, um, um, feel after after exercise. Um, there are also immediate increases in um, growth factors. A key growth factor is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. And um, studies in animals have shown that consistent increases in exercise that cause consistent increases in this BDNF, the growth factor, can stimulate the birth of even more brain cells in a key structure called the hippocampus. Now, this was the focus of uh, the first 20 years of my entire research career because this is the area that's critical for long-term memory. And so if somebody told you that if you go to the gym, you could actually get more cells in your brain area critical for long-term memory, would that serve as a motivation to go to the gym? And my answer was absolutely. I, I want the most brain cells in my hippocampus that I can get. And so so that is uh, that doesn't happen immediately. You don't start have sprouting brain cells the first time that you go to the gym. But after long-term um, exercise, all the studies in rodents show that this is one of the major benefits of exercise. And how has this then influenced uh, studies that you're working on now, future studies that you hope to um, begin uh, that really start to study even further about the factors yeah. from the body that are affecting the brain? Right, right. So my two main goals are to understand the uh, major exercise prescription um, for different genders for different age groups, for different genetic backgrounds. What is the best exercise prescription for you? That's the first uh, goal. The second goal is to understand the neurochemical pathways. Why is the brain changing? What are those signals that go from movement of muscles in your periphery to changes in the brain? And um, so these are, are uh, the things that we're focused on and kind of uh, interested. I'm, I'm uh, particularly interested in bringing this to education. So how can we use exercise to enhance the educational experience of our students? And I'm starting with NYU students. So I have a pilot study looking at the effects of one semester on and one semester off exercise. I'm interested in how exercise can affect um, workforce productivity. So what if everybody in the country increased their exercise and their mood improved and their memory and their attention all improved? How would that affect general workplace productivity. And finally, perhaps the most important question is how does exercising today affect our long-term um, brain functions, including the ability to become super agers, as you mentioned, uh, that, you, that you talked about recently. Um, you're not going to change as, um, if you have Alzheimer's or dementia in your genes. You're not going to change that. But what you can do is strengthen your brain. So it'll take longer for those uh, um, um, conditions to develop enough to show behavioral effects. So what is that formula and how early do you have to start to be able to maximally protect all brains from these neurodegenerative diseases that are costing, you know, healthcare billions of dollars. I wanted to go back to the documentary, uh, The Life and Science of Dr. Marion Diamond, and play another clip. I wanted you to respond uh, to something that um, she's saying. Everybody wants a better brain. There's no doubt. 
If there's an opportunity to improve your brain, you want to be there. And so five items that we have found are essential for a better brain. I think of all the millions of things, but five shown in our work. And the first was diet. The second was exercise. The third was challenge. And the fourth was newness. And the fifth, we've added love. She says love. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, by love, she means the care that they, so selectively, they examined the effect of caring for the animals in these experiments and did that improve their uh, brain function. And uh, you could translate that into decreased stress, uh, increase kind of overall wellness. And um, absolutely, stress is one of the uh, most damaging things that you can do for your brain long term. So you you give a rat not only um, exercise and and good food, but you give it a warm, loving, stress-free environment, and their brain uh, does better and it's stronger and it's larger. So uh, those are the studies that she did, and and that was also the way that she lived, which made her such a powerful role model and instructor and example um, to the thousands and thousands of students that she had. And I'm so lucky that I can say that I was one of those students. Dr. Wendy Suzuki, again, professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University. She'll be speaking at Real Artways in Hartford this evening at 6.30, head of a screening of the documentary, My Love Affair with the Brain, The Life and Science of Dr. Marion Diamond. Dr. Suzuki, I think you gave our listeners a lot to think about the next time they hit the gym, and we appreciate speaking with you and, and hearing about your research. Thank you so much. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.